Welcome to this Crosscut Media program. With Katie Sewell, I'm Steve Scher. Our brains are remarkably plastic, remarkably adaptable, but they're not indestructible. The latest neuroscience is telling us the developing brain is hurt by neglect, structurally changed. But hope isn't lost because we can learn new behaviors and the brain adapts. If you've been reading the articles in Crosscut, you've been learning about the new science and how it's affected individuals. In this program, we'll talk about these issues with two of the people profiled in these stories. Daniel Goodwin is a parent peer specialist for Child and Family Services at Valley Cities Counseling and Consultation. Growing up, she was a victim of chronic neglect. Currently, she provides support to parents receiving mental health services. And if you read the articles in Crosscut, you heard about her story. Danielle, thank you for talking to us. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Dr. Kate McLaughlin is Assistant Professor of Psychology at the University of Washington. She specializes in how environmental experience shapes the development of the brain. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, Danielle, let me, let me just start so people do understand um, your story. The story that was in Crosscut was very personal and, and, and very pointed. Why, why do you tell that story? Why is that a story you want to share with other people? Well, it's twofold. I think um, it, for me personally, it's therapeutic um, because for so long, um, everything was um, something, everything that I went through was something that was not to be talked about. And so in the beginning, when I began sharing my story, it was more of a therapeutic um, reason for me. Secondly, the other part of it is is because I know how it felt to feel so alone and isolated um, having gone through what I had went through. And so sharing my story, I believe, inspires others to also have the courage to do the same. And all the while, it can impact policy and system change as well. In reading those articles and reading about yourself in those articles, was it painful? I wouldn't say not so much any more painful. Uh, each time that I share my story and as time goes on and I am in different um, stages of healing, um, it's not as painful. And in all actuality, it w- it's, like I said, it's therapeutic. Um, it's a release for me. So, Professor Kate, <laughs> just a little bit about how different parts of the brain are affected by neglect. But first of all, what do we mean by neglect? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, Neglect can happen in many, many different forms. Um, The most common forms that we think about, um, I mean, neglect in essence is an absence of expected care um, provided for for a child. And there can be absence of many different kinds of care. So emotional neglect is one kind of neglect where a child is not getting the kind of um, emotional support Uh, responsive, um, sensitive responses from the caregiver. For example, when they're upset, when a baby's crying, a lack of response from the caregiver, that's an example of emotional neglect. Um, More often we think about things that are more um, physical or material kinds of neglect. So um, not providing basic necessities that a child needs to be healthy. So um, not providing adequate um, food or nutritious food, um, clothing, um, not monitoring children's attendance at school, um, not taking them to the doctor when they need um, when they need health care, um, and that's another kind of neglect. Um, so neglect can happen in many ways, but in essence it's uh, an absence of um, care that we know children need to be healthy. And what's the brain, the developing brain, doing when it's experiencing neglect? 
Yeah, I mean, it's a complicated question. Um, and I think that, you know, increasingly, um, you know, much of the research that's happened previously on how sort of adverse environments impact brain development is really focused on um, experiences involving trauma, right? The presence of abuse, the presence of threatening experiences, um, things that are very stressful, um, very acutely fear-inducing. Um, and historically, there's been much less research on how neglect um, impacts the way that the brain develops. Um, much of the research um, that's contributed to our understanding of this has actually come from studies of children who are extremely neglected. So for example, children who have grown up in um, orphanage settings, um, often in Eastern Europe, um, where they are deprived of expected care of many, many kinds. Uh, essentially kids who, in early life, sit in a crib for m most of the day by themselves. Um, there are very few adults um, present relative to the number of children who need care. And um, very, very low responsiveness of those adults to child needs. So no one answering when a child cries um, and very routinized sort of um, life. So everyone eats at the same time. Everyone goes to the bathroom at the same time. There's, there's no individualized care for different children. And so studies of that extreme kind of neglect have given us the first clues into how that kind of experience impacts the way the brain develops. When we come into the world, um, our brain is not uh, hardwired to develop following some sort of genetic blueprint, but it actually relies on inputs from the environment to develop normally. So a simple way of thinking about this is thinking about sensory systems like the visual system. So um, when we come into the world, um, our visual system requires inputs from the world into our eyes to develop normally. And if we blindfold a baby for the first six months of life, uh, they'll never see normally because the system actually requires input from the environment to develop normally. And many systems work this way. Language is another example. Um, essentially, what we think is happening in neglect is that the system is not getting the inputs from the environment that it expects. And so the circuits and the networks in the brain that are expecting those inputs essentially are not, because they're not getting them, um, what happens is that we see early pruning in those circuits. The brain prunes anyways, but this is early pruning. Exactly. So the process of pruning typically um, reflects the brain becoming more efficient. So in essence, um, during the first few years of life, there's sort of a proliferation of lots of different synaptic connections. Um, and then for much of the rest of, the, of life, those connections are pruned. Essentially, the system is learning which of these connections do I need um, to perform the functions that I'm, that I'm using frequently. Um, and if a connection is not being utilized or it's not efficient, then it gets pruned away. And the brain becomes more specialized in that way. And typically, that's, that's a normal developmental process, and it reflects increasing inf efficiency. Um, the problem that we think happens in neglect is that that process begins to happen much too early, and it happens too dramatically, right? So essentially, you can imagine if um, the brain is expecting language inputs, um, hearing spoken language to, to develop language capabilities, um, if it's not getting those inputs from the environment, uh, the circuits and the networks that are helping to scaffold the development of language skills um, get pruned away, which makes it much more difficult to learn those skills later. Um, and in fact, we see in children who have been neglected, um, one of the most um, consistent findings um, for the past 30 years has been that they have um, problems with language skills, so problems with expressive language, 
language and receptive language, difficulty deciphering what other people are saying to them, um, and diff difficulty producing language um, compared to what we would expect for a child of that age. Um, so that's just one example of how sort of an expected input from the environment is absent um, that can then shape sort of the system's ability to develop that skill later. Is this new? understandings that uh, about the brain that have come with new technologies? Yeah, I think I think so. I mean, in one sense, you know, we've always been able to test aspects of brain function using cognitive tests, things that test your memory, your language, your attention. Um, but with the ad advent of neuroimaging methods, which are relatively new, um, we've learned much more about how um, environmental experience actually influences the structure and the function of the brain. Um, and so with those techniques, um, one of the things that we've observed uh, in children who have grown up in these very extremely deprived environments um, is that we see uh, what, we, what we think reflects accelerated pruning throughout many regions of the brain that are used to um, perform sort of higher order cognitive processes like language and executive function, um, as well as areas that um, underlie social cognition. So your ability to decipher what other people are thinking, feeling, and then to act accordingly based on your sort of assumptions or beliefs about uh, another person's intentions. Um, and what we've found is that those areas um, in children who are exposed to very extreme neglect um, at a very early age are much thinner in terms of the gray matter that's in the cortex, in the regions um, that support these higher order cognitive processes. Neuroimaging doesn't allow us to actually go in there and count synapses and look at neurons, but what we think is happening is that those circuits are being pruned too early and they're being pruned too extensively because they're not getting the inputs that are expected from the environment for them to develop normally. Now, Danielle, how much of that, so that's very high level science, mm -hmm. how much of that just brings true to you as you were growing up, that notion of interaction, that notion of neglect? Yeah, a lot of it rings true, actually. Um, I, I, I believe in my early infancy, I, I did have the interaction, but because I come from such a long line of dysfunction, and the environment around me was so volatile, was so unstable. There was constant moving, constant change in caregivers, and so on, that that does really ring true. And then when, Katie, what you were talking about, the perception that the neglected person or whatever child would have um, at what they're looking at and, and the people, other people's intentions, that's something that I still, to this day, need to work on having PTSD, I may perceive a threat when there is not actually one present. And so it's really a lot of work for me to decipher and it takes a lot of extra time and, and grounding and, and being mindful and relying on my natural supports and things like that to kind of give me that extra input to understand like, okay, is this an actual threat or am I just internalizing this and, and, and feeling like it is? So it's a challenge. You know, just because you mentioned that on PTSD, let's let's yeah. let's mention that that's another thing that we are learning about the brain. That PTSD is something that doesn't just affect soldiers or people involved in great trauma. It's it's something that happens ongoing. How did you come to understand that that was something you were affected by? Interestingly enough, I learned more about it um, after going to therapy and things like that. But um, through my job. So I feel like my job is actually a blessing in disguise because I've gotten the opportunity to receive training, clinical uh, training on PTSD and various mental health um, issues through my, through my uh, position at my job at a mental health agency. 
So with that, I've, I, you know, I take that information and I'm like, oh, okay. So it's helped me put, I don't want to say labels, but it's helped me really identify areas that I, I am familiar that I struggle with. And, uh, you know, I was diagnosed with PTSD as well. But in the article, it talks about the, the work you had to do, the conscious work you had to do to gain control of your life, to gain control of your children. That's a very conscious effort. There's an interesting thing. A change in behavior reflects a change in the brain. So as you're changing your behavior, it's because your brain is learning new ways of being, therefore carving new pathways. As I grew in my recovery, you know, from just taking that, making that first decision um, to take that step, in a new direction and um, utilize the support that was being offered to me and my children um, because kind of it's a not just my PTSD and not my own neglect but then that also was passed down to my my own children and so I just finally was like enough is enough this has got to stop um, I it just came to a point where I, I wanted more for myself and my kids just that notion uh, uh, that the ch a change in behavior reflects a change in the brain. Is the brain that plastic that it can start to rewire itself? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, in terms of thinking about PTSD, I think that it's this is a great way of thinking about how changes in behavior uh, can can ultimately lead to changes changes in the brain and changes in brain function as well as brain structure. So what we think happens um, in trauma exposure, which is you know trauma has been um, studied a lot um, both in the context of combat veterans, for example. But um, my lab um, has started to do work um, on the neuroscience of child trauma. So what happens to the brain after kids are exposed to things like um, physical and sexual abuse? Um, and what we see, and it sounds like this really resonates with your experience, is that regions of the brain that are responsible for detecting threats in the environment, um, including uh, a region called the amygdala, um, become much, uh, much more responsive to cues in the environment that could signal threat. So the idea is something really dangerous happens to you, right? And regions in your brain that are basically um, specialized to identify salient things in the environment, things that could have significance for your survival, um, become essentially on high alert. Yeah. Um, they become much more likely to respond to things that a person who hasn't had this experience might find to be neutral um, or not potentially threatening at all. Um, and then we also know that regions of the brain that help to modulate the amygdala, so regions in the medial prefrontal cortex that help to kind of dampen that amygdala response, particularly once you've been in situations, um, similar situations that you've learned are safe. Right? So the more you encounter a particular stimulus and you see that it's safe, this region of the brain helps to say to the amygdala, essentially, it's cool. Everything's all right. You don't need to be scared. And we also see that the connection between those two regions of the brain um, becomes disrupted um, in people who go on to develop PTSD. Right, So that part of the brain that helps to calm the amygdala um, essentially is not doing its job very well. Um, but the way that we treat PTSD, um, and, and I'm not sure if this resonates with, um, with something that you experienced when you um, saw a therapist, is by essentially having people um, go over and, and sort of relive um, the traumatic things that happened to them, right? So to allow kind of the emotions and the feelings to get re-aroused 
in a situation that you know is safe, which is being in, you know, in a safe place with somebody who is trying to help you. And repeatedly doing that sort of helps to facilitate the connections between this region of the brain that helps essentially tell the amygdala mm-hmm. that things are safe. Um, it's no longer threatening. And when we see that um, over time with treatment, the amygdala becomes less responsive. So that pattern of hyperreactivity that we see um, changes. And that's really a function of changes in behavior, right? This is something that you did behaviorally, talking to somebody else about your experience in a particular way um, that can have downstream effects on how, um, how the brain is functioning. So that's sort of a, a long answer to the question, but absolutely. And we think, you know, um, in the field of clinical psychology, right, that the process of talking um, heals the brain. And, and we're beginning to learn, you know, with the advent of neuroimaging exactly how that process happens. So you did that work in counseling, but also, I guess, just with the man who became your husband as well, right? He, he, was, he was on the same path, a little bit further along? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, yeah, I did do uh, therapy, which, you know, obviously was court-ordered, but it was very helpful, and at this point I was willing. So that was very helpful, and, of course, my husband was the first person to really reframe what had happened to me to give me a new way of thinking about it. He also was a trauma survivor, so, um, you know, and a lot of the things that he would do, too, is, you know, remind me, like, it's okay, like, you're safe. I'm not, you know, I'm not them people, you know, and so really verbalizing for me, because I, he could see that I would get tense in certain situations. But also, I, I would like to add, too, that I had a, a community of people really reach out to me. So I belong to a really supportive church, and I had women reach out to me and really provide those missing pieces from my childhood or, you know, throughout my life. So, you know, various people just reaching out to me and providing that motherly role, providing that um, supportive listening um, and feedback and just really being there for me, which I believe has done a miracle in my life. And that's what you're doing for other people as well, right? And that also helps for your own learning as well as for theirs. Is that right? Yeah, I, I believe so. And that's the feedback I've gotten. So, yeah. <laughs> what, what have you gotten? What, what kind of things have you heard from people that you're working with? I've been told that I'm very supportive, um, that I, I get it, you know. So I, I work with parents who have been through similar experiences of my, as myself and are struggling to, um, it, it varies from um, parents who are having difficulty bonding with their children or understanding the children's behavior. Um, and so my role is really just not only to share my experiences as, as it's relevant, but to help them not feel alone and also to provide education from the um, personal experience as well as clinical experience and training that I've gotten. So helping them look at their children's behavior in a different light, that it's a, it's, it, it looks like the child is acting out and um, maybe being manipulative, but, but in actuality it's an unmet need. But if the parents don't see it like that, then that kind of raises the risk for um, uh, a reaction that could cause neglect or abuse. Yeah, I, I, I was struck by that. That's profound to me because that also harkens back to what you're saying about a, a, a history yeah. of, of neglect or abuse that goes back generation to generation or even culture to culture, country to country. And that, that all stems from somebody misreading a cue of a baby, for example. That's a remarkable notion. When did you sort of come to understand that personally with your own children? Well, through education and I'm a woman of faith, and so I, I give all credit and glory to God for where I am today and for him providing me the, the opportunities and the education and open doors that I've learned. So really just having that support around me and, and um, like I said, the, the people that, that banded 
together with me, helping me see things from a different perspective. Mm. My daughter, for example, um, it was really difficult for me to be affectionate with her. Um, it wasn't that way with my boys, and I I was baffled um, when I had gotten them back. Why? What was this? What was going on? And I. I took a, a chance and, and, and asked for support around it, and I, I, I was able to receive feedback that made sense, that didn't make me feel bad about myself, but really gave me, oh, okay, that's what it is, but there is something you can do about it. So that gave me hope. So Kate, why do we separate abuse and neglect psychologically? Are there different effects on the brain? Uh, we think so. Uh, historically, they haven't been separated, and, and part of the challenge is that they travel along together so often, right? So most children who are neglected have also been exposed to some form of abuse, and, and many children who have been abused have also been neglected, and so it can, it can be difficult to tease apart their independent effects because they often happen together. Um, but increasingly, um, we have um, been attempting to do so and have been learning that they appear to have very different effects on how the brain develops. Uh, and that's important not only because there are ch many children who experience only one of these kinds of negative environments, um, but it, it speaks to the kinds of intervention strategies that might be useful for separately addressing um, the consequences of abuse or trauma and the consequences of neglect. Some of the primary things that happen in kids who are exposed to trauma uh, are exactly the kinds of um, sort of threat response um, disruptions that I mentioned earlier. So regions of the brain that detect salient cues in the environment that are responsible for learning about potential threats um, become essentially on high alert. They become more responsive to many kinds of cues, even cues that might not necessarily be threatening, but things that could potentially be threatening become triggers for the amygdala to have a strong response. And the amygdala activates our autonomic nervous system, the stress response in our body. Essentially, that region of the brain is on high alert. We also see that regions of the brain that help to modulate the amygdala are not doing that as well. Um, and those regions of the brain tend to be shaped by what we call extinction learning. So after you've experienced something that's traumatic, if you consistently are in safe environments where the kinds of cues that were present when you were exposed to trauma are no longer present, a new kind of learning forms that competes with that fear learning that happened originally when you were exposed to something that was legitimately threatening. But for kids who have chronic trauma, they're never in a situation that's safe for very long. And so that region of the brain doesn't develop in the same way that it would for children who are in more predictable, consistently safe environments. So we also see that there's poor modulation of the amygdala by this region of the brain that helps to sort of keep it in check. And we've shown um, in children um, that higher responses in the amygdala predict the likelihood that you develop PTSD after a subsequent trauma. So what we think is this, basically the cycle emerges where being exposed to a trauma heightens your amygdala response to many different kinds of cues and then you experience another trauma. Heightened amygdala response makes you much more likely to develop PTSD symptoms after that traumatic event. So we think the amygdala is really playing a very central role in PTSD. This is not just something for little babies, though, correct? I mean, the, the, the developing teen brain is as affected by these, these triggers, and the brain is reshaped again. Is that correct? Absolutely. Is there some time when the brain no longer is so plastic, or are we always able at some point with new inputs, different strategies, able to rewire ourselves? 
I mean, plasticity is always possible, right? Our brains are constantly changing and responding to things in the environment. You know, we know that there are, for some capabilities, sensitive periods when the brain is most likely to respond to particular kinds of inputs from the environment. And, and the best example that I think everyone can resonate with is language, right? So there's a sensitive period early in development when our brains are expecting to hear language from the environment and use, uh, uses those inputs to um, scaffold the development of language skills, right? So kids who are exposed to two languages um, early in life um, have a very easy time uh, learning those languages. Whereas if you expose someone to a second language as an adult, it's much more difficult for them to learn. It doesn't mean it's impossible, um, but it's, it's more difficult because the system wasn't expecting those kinds of inputs at that stage in development. So we know that that is true for certain kinds of capabilities, um, but we're really very much in the beginning of understanding how sensitive periods in the brain and sort of developmental timing um, varies for the kinds of social and emotional traits that we're talking about, right? And so for the amygdala, this is a region of the brain that comes online very early um, because its role is essentially to keep us safe from danger. It does other things as well, but one of its primary uh, roles is to keep us safe and to learn about when things are not safe. Uh, the amygdala functions in what we think is a very similar way even in rodents than it does in humans. It's a very old structure. Um, and so we think that uh, amygdala responses um, to environmental stimuli, the kind of pattern that I described, we expect to see that all across development, not just early in life, not just in childhood, um, but that threatening um, stimuli in the environment trauma, right, in, in adults who are exposed to trauma, we see the same pattern of the amygdala becoming more responsive. So for, for some systems, those sensitive periods seem to be much more prominent um, than for other systems, and we're still very much in, in the process of learning um, about that. I'm going to inject a little politics into this because yeah. I'm curious about this. I mean, we talk about privilege. We often call it white privilege, but it's really about wealth privilege or maybe stability privilege. Mm -hmm. So I had a very stable life growing up. Did you, Kate? Yeah, for the most part. For the most part. I was thinking about the work you do, yeah. Danielle, and I was thinking about how we're going to, in Seattle, we're about to spend a lot of money on early childhood education because it's necessary. But it got me thinking, boy, if there were 10,000 people like you working with families from pre-birth pre to three, we maybe could solve these problems in a much better way. And, and what do you think? Well, um, thank you for that. <laughs> um, I, I, I agree. I agree that early childhood intervention is key. Um, because especially when you're working with the parents because you can treat the child and you could bring the child in for therapy all you want but if the parents aren't educated and provided the support that they need then it's really um, for nothing because they are the direct link to this child and in prevention. It's a fascinating thing how we organize our our needs when you've done the study and then you think about the different ways we're approaching things you know, if you could wave your wand, what do you think? Well, I would agree that we need far more early intervention services, and they need to be not just focused on, you know, learning and school readiness. And those programs are fantastically important, right, especially for addressing some of the kinds of problems that we think arise um, in cognitive domains following neglect, so scaffolding language development, the development of executive functioning skills like working memory, being able to inhibit certain responses to wait your turn. These are the kinds of things that early learning programs really help to support in children. But it sounds like children need that support because they're not getting it 
from their adult role models, their caregivers. Um, often, exactly. But the you know an early intervention program that provides those structures and supports um, in the right way can be very meaningful in helping to scaffold some of these cognitive skills. At the same time, if we're not addressing some of the social and emotional pieces that come along with these um, negative early environments, then we're missing a really important part of the picture. Kids can have con- trouble concentrating for lots of reasons. Um, some of that might be the absence of particular kinds of inputs or structures in the family, consistency, routine. Um, that kids rely on to develop those skills on their own. But they also could have trouble concentrating because they have learned that things are really unsafe and that you need to pay attention to your environment all the time to be sure that nothing dangerous is going to happen. So focusing on a school worksheet or an activity or a game can be really difficult because of this vigilance. Oh, I was just going to add to that too. Like, And also basic needs aren't met. So back to the social structure and things like that, like, you know, not just only focusing on the early um, education, getting them ready for school, but helping um, our community, like, be able to meet these basic needs, you know. So if you're hungry and you haven't got breakfast and you know you're not going to get dinner and lunch is the only thing that you know you're going to get because you are in school, then probably, yeah, it's going to be difficult to focus on this test because you're so hungry or you're concerned about, well, is mom going to be home or who's going to be there when I get back? So I agree with that. That was a big deal for me as a kid. How did you get educated? I got my GD while I was in prison, and um, after that I did a few um, college courses um, at Cascadia Community College in 2005, but um, really that's the only education I have. But all through your teen years you were on the streets, You yeah. were, so was it just street learning, or mm-hmm. how did you get yourself During the times that I did go to school, uh, very inconsistently and in multiple locations, I did get the the foundational core reading skills and things like that because it was in Montana. There were small class sizes and things like that. So even though I moved around a lot, there were um, people in my life periodically that would um, encourage me to read and, and things like that. So I didn't have much education until I went to the penitentiary. And as a matter of fact, it was there that I was um, provided that opportunity. You know, I was struck also by the fact that you um, you had a lot of bad adults, but you had a few good adults mm-hmm. through the years huh, that reached out to you. Just real simple things that yeah. stuck in your mind? Well, I had a, I had a grandmother who... Um, was very supportive um, and she's not my biological grandmother but she's the um, mother to my the first husband my mom married and so she's the biological grandmother of my other siblings and we would get to spend time with her I did have an uncle who um, you know attempted to help me there were a lot there were a few people in my life um, stepfathers various you know stepfathers but mainly two of them who who were instrumental in probably my safety um, overall uh, during specific periods in my life. One thing that I always say is I don't think that they were educated enough to know what to do. They wanted to do something and they did what they could and they did what they knew how. But if you're not aware of the high risk factors and the signs that were happening in in my life, then I'm sure you you can't necessarily blame them. No, I mean, you can have problems in a Romanian orphanage of the kinds that the studies have shown it just goes back to pointing out how we all need to be educated at one point right yeah and I mean I think that you know this is a really important point that um, evidence suggests that even kids who grow up in very chaotic unstable threatening environments the presence of 
even just one adult who is supportive, who cares, who clearly um, invests emotionally um, in that child um, can make a world of difference in terms of um, uh, the long-term um, outcomes for that child. So, you know, and I think that your point about education is really important. Going back to your question about early intervention, you know, the if we could wave a magic wand and create the best kinds of early intervention programs, they would always um, target the parents and not just the kids, right? So, you know, just as you said, there's there's only so much you can teach a three or four year old, right, in a classroom setting. If they're going back to the same environment every night, right, that learning is competing with a whole lot of other stuff that's going on. And that, you know, I think a lot of the struggle is creating early interventions that are also teaching parents about um, basics of child development. What do ch children need at different ages to, to develop normally? What are the kinds of things that might be most likely to disrupt that kind of development? But also providing real supports for, for parents to provide that kind of stuff. So it's easy to say, here's what we should be doing. Um, but without um, the kinds of policies and structures that can help families actually implement the right kinds of things for their children, I think that you know we're going to have a long way to go until well, our interventions look like that. Two questions on that one for you and one for one for Danielle. So, Kate, how do you would you like to see this research used? You know, ultimately the goal is um, understanding exactly how um, particular kinds of environments might. Uh, disrupt the way that the brain develops normally with a goal of um, better understanding what does the brain need, what does a child's brain need to develop in an optimal way. And if we understand that, if we understand the kinds of inputs from the environment that are necessary or important for shaping healthy brain development, we can do a better job of providing those things um, in our interventions, whether they be interventions just with the child alone or interventions that happen at the level of the family. And so ultimately that's our goal, to, to um, better understand what we could do um, to prevent some of, the, um, some of the negative outcomes that we see in kids who grow up in, in adverse environments. Same, same question to you. How would you like to see this now as it's emerging uh, get used, Danielle? Um, I would like to see uh, more parents like myself be be in whatever it is we create, because I'm not an expert, I don't necessarily know, but whatever it is, the intervention that we create, I feel like it would be beneficial to have people like myself, um, survivors uh, um, of neglect and trauma, be a part of that implementation. So if you did have an early intervention program that was all-inclusive and in providing parent education, I think that it would be beneficial to have somebody who's kind of survived that to connect with the parents because the barrier that we run into is trust. So it's not just that the parents are neglecting the children, they are parent, survivors of neglect themselves and it goes back generations and generations and so they need that connection. What do you do? Give me an example when you're working with a parent who's, who's in that process. What are some things you see and how do you help them? Well, I do a lot of um, reframing. So I might have a parent who does a lot of labeling the child or they may um, you know become easily frustrated and so one of the things I do is really validate their feelings for them uh, I validate that that's a very frustrating behavior um, I, I understand that I've been through that myself and sometimes I still you know 
have my own challenges. And so that way we're on equal ground. We're on equal ground. I'm not coming at the parent um, as an expert or I'm telling you what to do. I really validate their feelings, um, come at them in an equal way, and then just say, this is what ha- this is what's been helpful for me. This is what I can provide. Then provide the education around, you know, what in, within my scope of childhood development and what what works and what's effective. And so asking them, are you interested in learning that? Because it, it is frustrating and nobody wants to be constantly frustrated. And then the other piece of it is too, is talking with the parents about what was helpful for me and what I realized um, that it wasn't necessarily only the child's behavior, but that I had my own stuff that needed to be dealt with in order for me to be in a better and effective parent, that that is what needed to be addressed. And then once I was able to work through those challenges of my own, I realized that my responses became more positive. Is there anything in particular you're most proud of in that in that aspect of your relationship with your daughter, for example? Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm very proud that um, as of today, I feel connected to my daughter. I, I believe my daughter feels connected to me, and that's that's that was a long road. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was. And so I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud that my children have been home longer than the time that they were in foster care. And so I'm noticing that their responses are not as intense because when they first came home, they, I believe their amygdala was responding. They, you know, and so, for example, a vacuum cleaner or a sudden sound, they're a little jumpy, you know. So those types of things I've noticed decrease. Um, I'm very proud that my husband and I have provided a, a, a safe and stable, consistent environment for our children and that they're doing well and they're thriving. When you say connected, you mean a real physical, emotional connection, something that you had felt lacking in yourself and in your mother. I mean, you mean something deep, yes, not just, oh, we're connecting across the table. Yeah, I do see a lot of uh, resemblances in my daughter. The other day I was looking at her and I was just amazed at how much she looks like me when I was her age. And I was just looking at her and telling her how beautiful she was. And I said, you know, Naomi, you're so smart. And just telling her these these positive things. And I do. I feel a, a, a stronger connection. I'm not saying that I don't have more work to do. I think that it, it's a consistent journey. Is there a part of the brain, by the way, Kate, that isn't affected by neglect? You know, the, the regions that tend to be most effective are the regions that are involved in more complex kinds of thoughts, regulation of emotions, and social behaviors, right? Um, primary sensory systems, right, our ability to see, to hear, to smell, to taste, those kinds of systems, they don't require the kinds of social inputs to develop normally. And so, you know, for the most part, those systems seem to be developing pretty normally in kids, regardless of social inputs from the environment. Um, You know, you don't need a particular social experience to learn how to see, right? It just is a matter of light coming into the eyes in different ways. The networks that seem to be most affected, they're quite predictable. They're the ones, you know, the networks that involve um, social behavior, social cognition, understanding other people's thoughts and feelings and intentions and responding accordingly, um, discriminating different kinds of emotions in people's faces is difficult for, for kids who have been neglected, right? Because they, they haven't had those kinds of inputs or they've only been exposed to inputs of a particular kind, like faces that are angry. And um, we know that kids, um, for example, who have been abused are very good at identifying anger. They identify it really early and they sometimes mistake 
other emotions for anger um, because um, that's a really good predictor that something could be threatening, right, an angry face. You know, the other kinds of regions are really regions that are more cognitive, regions that support language, memory, decision-making. Um, and, you know, we think that what we're increasingly learning is that it seems as though um, social inputs are also necessary to scaffold that kind of cognitive development in kids. And language makes sense. Obviously, language is a very social kind of cognition. It's a very social skill. Uh, we use it with other people. Um, but even, you know, uh, cognitive processes or functions that um, are not inherently social in nature seem to require certain kinds of social inputs. And we think um, language may be playing actually a really important role here. So when you learn a language, um, you have to learn rules. Um, you have to be able to hold those rules in mind. You have to hold in mind the first part of a sentence while you wait for the, the latter part. Um, you have to inhibit your response to blurt out an answer right away or to interrupt someone. And so learning a language, you have to, you know, you have to have flexibility because different words can mean different things in different contexts, right? So we think that practicing language is actually a really important scaffold. It scaffolds the ability to do more complex kinds of cognitive processes like working memory, inhibition, uh, rule shifting. And so, you know, that's just one example of how um, social inputs are required, even for these processes that we think about as very non-social. We used to think of ourselves as pretty determined beasts. And now, as you're telling us, we're plastic. And we can learn, adapt, and grow. Is there any evidence that says the, the neglected brain won't catch up with their peers, won't heal over time? Not at all. I mean, I think that the most important message is that, you know, something we've learned by studying what happens when the environment is um, not particularly conducive to normal development uh, is that the environment has remarkably powerful impacts on the brain and the way that it develops. And in a similar way, we know that positive inputs, supports, and structures can have just as meaningful an impact on how the brain is developing. And just a very brief example, um, even in kids who have been exposed to really the most stark deprivation that you could imagine, the kids essentially growing up in a crib by themselves with no one taking care of them. Uh, in the study that I've been involved with, we um, some of those kids were removed from these orphanages and placed into high-quality foster homes. And this is not what you think about when you think of foster care in the U.S., um, which can vary widely in terms of its quality. These were families that were um, highly screened, selected, trained in how to be responsive, sensitive caregivers to these children. And we see um, when we look at their brains several years later, when the kids were around 8 to 10 years old, the kids who got placed into that early supportive environment have um, meaningful changes in the brain compared to the kids who weren't. So even after a very extreme negative early environment, we see remarkable plasticity. So these kids have greater white matter connectivity. White matter is the part of the brain that connects different regions together. It helps us build complex networks, do more complex kinds of processing. And we see that the kids who got placed in those um, supportive families have significantly more white matter and greater connectivity than the kids who stayed in the orphanage for a longer period of time. So, you know, first, change is always possible. Um, and second, we think that positive environments have just as meaningful, if not more meaningful, impacts on how the brain develops than negative ones. Yeah, plasticity is, is kind of the, the hallmark of our brains, and it's a really positive thing because it means that, you know, changes um, are always possible. How do you answer that question as well, Daniel? I'm sure over your years you had moments when you despaired or saw yourself locked into place, but you don't see yourself that way anymore. How do you see you and your children going forward? 
Oh, I have a very hopeful outlook on my my life and my children's lives, um, as well as my husband. I mean, we're all survivors, and so I'm living proof, as, as they are, we all as a family are living proof that things can and do change um, and that there's hope despite whatever it is anybody has gone through no matter how ugly and, and devastating that things can be provided as interventions um, there are things that can help you I feel very hopeful going forward I look forward to everything that I believe God has in store for me and my family and I um, would love to share that with more and more people you know you can read uh, these stories of uh, Danielle, uh, Kate McLaughlin's work, and uh, some of the other folks who were interviewed at crosscut.com. Danielle Goodwin is a parent peer specialist for child and family services at Valley Cities Counseling and Consultation. Dr. Kate McLaughlin is assistant professor of psychology at the University of Washington. I thank you both for talking to us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to this Crosscut media program. Support for this reporting comes from the Giddens Foundation. With Katie Sewell, I'm Steve Scher.